Welcome to Unless, Stories from Everyday Earthsavers, a podcast where I interview ordinary people, people just like you who through passion, inspiration, or straight-up determination have found a way to direct the future of our environment toward a more perfect outcome. Through their words, I hope to inspire you, the listener, to learn, to grow, or to make a change no matter how small. Your actions have the power to shape our future, because in the great words of Dr. Seuss, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, Nothing is going to get better. It's not. Now on to today's story. Welcome, listeners. I have a special treat for you today in Episode 3 of Unless, Stories of Everyday Earthsavers. Today, I interview Kim Savino of the Start Seeing Monarchs Initiative. We talk about how Kim used her childhood experiences with her dad involving butterflies to pursue a career in education. We then discuss how Kim began a classroom zoo to provide similar experiences to her students, and how she's turned this into a new initiative, Start Seeing Monarchs, in which she uses community education to promote butterfly way stations and awareness about the importance of pollinators. So without further ado, I welcome Kim. Kim, how are you? I'm real good. Thanks, Patrick. How are you doing today? I've been better. It's freezing cold, and we had a pipe burst, so it's been definitely an eventful (laughs) couple of days. (laughs) Oh, that's not good. That's not good, but thankfully you had a few days off, hopefully, from I did. I did. And you too as well? Yeah, same here. Same here. So all is good. I can't complain about that. It's nice to have the few days off, but we're going to have to pay for it come June. Yeah, I try to do a lot of e-learning with my students to try to get them prepared for their assessments. Uh, The reason why I invited you on the show is because you've told me your story in the past. And, uh, you know, I was inspired with your tale. And when I decided to uh, come up with this program, you were actually the first person I thought of. Uh, So can you tell me a little bit about the work you've been doing in the conservation arena? Sure, sure. Um, Well, first of all, um, monarch butterflies have always been a passion of mine since I was a little girl. Um, And the one thing that I feel strongly about is helping other people to understand how important um, the monarch butterfly and pollinators in general are important to our world and why they're important. And um, with the struggles that the monarch butterfly is facing right now currently for the past uh, several years, it's something that I, I just felt really strongly about. And with the program, the AIP program, and having to select a master plan and something that you would choose to work on if that meant until the day you died, um, something that you could be that passionate about. For me, it wasn't a question. It was the monarch butterfly. And so um, that is what I work um, with my students and my community in our local neighborhood and outside of our neighborhood, um, extending, you know, into other communities about trying to help people to understand the plight of the monarch butterfly, what we can do to help the monarch butterfly survive and thrive and what exactly that means and, and how, um, and why that's important to all of us and why we should all care. So, uh, for our listeners, uh, can you kind of give a brief overview about uh, what are the issues with the monarch butterflies? Well, Really, I think um, one of the biggest issues that people need to understand is milkweed is the monarch butterfly. Without milkweed, the monarch butterfly cannot exist. And while there are so many other issues that the monarch faces, that's the number one. Um, milkweed is the host plant of the monarch butterfly. And so, so many areas that the monarch butterfly used to be able to rely upon um, when we were kids, Patrick, it, it, those areas are gone. So, For instance, um, 70% of the milkweed population that the monarch used to rely upon was around the corn fields, around the corn belts, and they can no longer rely on that because the corn is grown with GMOs. Um, 
and the seed, the the genetically modified seed, when the corn actually tassels and pollinates, um, that goes on to the milkweed plants, which then um, basically poisons the milkweed and can ultimately affect the monarch butterfly um, in many ways. Either it can die the caterpillar um, when it ingests it, or the monarch cannot lay eggs um, or be fertile. There's so many different ways in which it, it could potentially be affected. So is it the is it the, the food source for the monarch butterfly at all stages of its life cycle? That's one of the things I've always kind of wondered. Um, or is it only during the caterpillar phase? It's it's the only plant that the monarch will lay its eggs on, and it's the only plant that the caterpillar will eat. So the cat the caterpillar eats the milkweed um, all the way until it makes its chrysalis. Once it becomes a chrysalis in its final stage of development, um, and it turns into a butterfly, the butterfly no longer needs the milkweed plant itself. It can drink the nectar from the flowers on the milkweed, but it can go to other sources for nectar as well. And the nectar that they get from annuals and perennials um, throughout different neighborhoods is used as energy to help it continue along its path because typically the monarch, the adult monarch butterfly, only lives a few weeks at the most. And the female butterfly, um, its goal is to lay all of the eggs that it has within its abdomen, which could be anywhere from 200 to 1,000 eggs during that period of time. And so you said the major plight of the monarchs is the fact that they no longer have the milkweed. And so that would mean that uh, they have no place to lay the eggs and the uh, juvenile caterpillars, they have no food source, correct? That it, that's, that's correct. So every for every egg that's laid... We, we basically say that there should be one stem of milkweed for every egg that a monarch butterfly leg lays. Um, so if a monarch has 200 eggs within her, then hopefully there's 200 stems of milkweed around. But what we've seen and what we've started to see is that on the undersides of the milkweed plants where the monarch lays its egg, we're finding two and three and four eggs sometimes laid on one single leaf, and that's done by one butterfly. And so that butterfly is really, you know, struggling to find exactly what it needs. And that in itself is a problem. So, yes, it's, that's one of the problems that it faces. You know, areas of construction, uh, the places where new housing developments have gone up, new roads have gone up you know, all the places where milkweed used to exist, they no longer, you know, we don't have those areas. So what we've tried to promote that whole thing of how beautiful milkweed actually is and how you can control that and that how there's a perfect setting for that. And um, we're trying to get people to plant way stations, um, which are really just um, gardens that are pollinator friendly where nobody uses herbicides or pesticides and they can plant these kinds of gardens in the side yard, in their front yard, in their backyard, and put a a waste station sign out in front that actually educates people as to what it is that they're trying to do and what they're trying to establish so people understand what's going on. And and once they actually see, they're engaged, and they want to do the very same thing within their backyards, um, which is great. Um, Where can somebody that... uh is interested in helping out or building one of these way stations? Because I know they don't take up very much space at all. Where is some? Where can somebody go that's interested in creating a monarch way station? 
Um, well, they can take a look at my website to start. Startseeingmonarchs.org is a great source to a great place to start. I list a lot of different annuals and perennials and different things that people can plant within their gardens. The flowers that monarchs tend to gravitate towards. I have a lot of information on all the different species of milkweed that are native to our area, which is really important. You want to make sure you're planting species that are indigenous to our area because, uh, for instance, some people have taken to planting tropical milkweed because it lasts longer, it blooms longer, which is really not a good thing to do because we do not want to promote the monarchs staying in our area longer than they're supposed to stay. We need them to start flying south and heading to the mountains in Mexico. Um, and if the milkweed is still green and not getting brown and not, you know, the seeds are, uh, the pods aren't starting to form and the flowers are still existing, that acts as an aphrodisiac for the monarchs. So instead of the last generation saving its energy because the last generation of monarchs is not sexually mature, it will then go forward and it will mate. And then that last final generation will not make it to Mexico if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I think so, yeah. You know, the cold snap, they won't be able to make those thousands of miles of flight to get to Mexico. So we don't want to keep them here longer than need be. So planting species of milkweed that are native to our areas is really important. And those tropical milkweeds are meant to be in the areas of Florida or California or the areas where, you know, where, where tropical milkweed is supposed to bloom because the the weather and the temperatures call for that right we don't we definitely don't want any uh monarch butterfly downer parties going on you know no (laughs) leaving a little bit too late in the season and uh, not making it the whole way right exactly so milkweed's just one of the problems though i mean there's a lot of other things if you want me to go into those such as um you know deforestation climate change um herbicides and pesticides i mean there's just the list goes on and on but you know just getting people to understand that without milkweed, there are no monarchs. And we will read about monarchs in, you know, history books like we do the dinosaurs if we're not careful. So um, this year is a really good year, though. However, information just came out on Monarch Watch about the numbers and what we're seeing in the mountains of Mexico so far. It's really promising. We're seeing a huge increase from last year. So that means the work that we're all doing is is really starting to make a difference from the information that was out there six or seven years ago, we're, we're seeing the numbers start to increase and it's the first time in a long time. Right. Even, even my, um, my stepdad and my grandpa have, uh, they're in Florida. So they're, they're doing the uh, tropical milkweed and they're engaging with a species of monarchs that aren't quite as endangered as the, the species that we're talking about in the Midwest. Correct. Uh, but right. the, they, they've, uh, they've both taken to planting milkweed, hoping to attract the monarch butterflies and down in my, uh, step uh, my mom's and my stepdad's uh community they're also raising those those uh tropical milkweeds and i saw i was able to see uh, dozens upon dozens of the baby caterpillars just just scooting along and uh, nibbling to their heart's content i know it wasn't quite the same species that you're that you're passionate about but it was still a pretty cool no, sight to see that's so cool nonetheless it's very very cool um have you ever heard the story about the somebody taking a butterfly from Florida and bringing it here to this neck of the woods 
um, when it was time to migrate, instead of that butterfly flying south with the rest of the butterflies, it went back to Florida. <laughs> no, I did. I did not hear that at all. I, this yeah. really this, yeah. was that an experiment, or was that a was that an yeah. accidental no, thing? This, this, this is an experiment. I've heard about this. Now I haven't seen it myself, but I've heard about this, and it's just like one of those science things that you just can't quite understand, but. They, they have this magnetic drive, something within them. They know where they come from. They know where they're supposed to go. And you can't just make them, you can't just make it happen. And what will be so cool in my mind is someday when I retire to do some sort of an experiment with that to see, you know, take some <laughs> butterflies, some cat, or, you know, in, in the egg form, is it in their DNA? Is it in the plants that they eat? Is it, is it the butterflies? You know, what, what is it? Um, at what stage does it recognize where it belongs and what a cool, interesting, you know, experiment that would be to figure out, but I don't know if we'll ever know, but just kind of a, it's, it's interesting. It's really cool how much, how little we actually know about, uh, butterflies. Scientists have no clue how it really goes from a, like caterpillar to a butterfly because it basically liquefies itself down to the cellular level and then reconstitutes itself and how do those cells remember and know and so it's, it's they're really fascinating it's the, it's creatures the craziest thing just the craziest thing um it, well and just even uh you know the formation of it yes from chrysalis or from cocoon if you're talking moths you know all the way up that's crazy in itself but to think that it was only in the 70s that we figured out where where a butterfly like the monarch actually migrates to we didn't know until the 70s that seems so recent doesn't it yeah it seems it seems incredibly it's it's, it's crazy the more i learn about science how recent a lot of this a lot of the environmental sciences really are right it, i mean that seems that seems like something we should have always known <laughs> Right, right. That that oh, you depend upon your environment, and everything in the environment depends upon other things. And you better you better be careful because you know one little change could have uh, downstream effects. It's like yeah. it's only been thirty, forty years that we've we've really discovered these things or started yeah. talking about them even. And, right. and you wonder why you know politics and everything. It takes a long time to to catch up with uh, with the with the knowledge base, and this is such a new knowledge base. So no wonder people don't fully understand it or uh, are able to take action upon it. You know, it's it's really interesting and quite fascinating to me, though, Patrick. Once you once you share some of this information with students, and well, I'm sure you're not surprised. You've done the same with your students and sharing things with them, and you open their eyes to it and you um, share it with your community and their parents, they want to see more. They want to know more. Once I have them actually, you know, watch a monarch hatch in my classroom, once I have them actually tag and release the monarchs themselves, they want to plant milkweed. They want to release monarchs. They want to do the research. They want to help. They want to, and it just becomes this thing that once you see it once, you become the life for yourself. So I'm hoping I'm creating other little 10-year-olds like myself, you know, who are now 53-year-olds, to to want to carry on this so that when our generation passes away, there's still all these other people in the world who care about the little things like the monarch, which is really only a check engine light for all the other things that are going on in our world. Right. And that's the whole purpose behind this show is to uh, kind of get away from the data and the nitty gritty and to say, hey, 
to engage people, uh, to get them to experience these things so that they can go out and, and, you know, eke that curiosity out and eke that passion. Like you said, like create lots of little mini U's around there. So uh, that leads us back to, we were talking before the show, before I started recording about how one of my passions is to try to figure out what brought people to what they care about and, and how they learned uh, about those things for themselves. So can you tell me, Kim, how you went from being a little girl not knowing a lot about monarchs to now uh, fighting to keep them around for the future generation? Sure, uh, absolutely. Um, well, let's see. I'll start back with a story, actually, when the, um, when my zoo started in my classroom, which was over 17 years ago. Um, I accepted a grant and um, went to New York to accept the grant, and um, I was asked to speak um, and at the ceremony. I talked about how I became um, interested in animals in particular. And so I told the story about when I was a little girl and uh, I was about 10 years old, I believe, 10, 11. um, And I was with my dad and we were in the North woods of Wisconsin and we were driving down the blacktop road, heading back to our cabin, getting ready to leave later that evening to go back home. It was a good six hour drive home and just my dad and I, and, uh, we um, were going down the road and he said, hey, how about we stop here at this milkweed patch over here? Let's go see what we can find. And I was like, sure, that sounds great. So we got out of the car and we went over into the milkweed patch and we were up to our neck in milkweed, literally. Um, But we didn't leave that milkweed patch for a good three or four hours. And we turned over every leaf of milkweed that you can imagine. It was all common milkweed, a big, huge field of it. We came out of there with probably over 100 caterpillars, um, I kid you not, and we had a big 20-gallon container in the back of the station wagon, um, because that's what everybody has in the back of their station wagon, right? (laughs) Just carries around a 20-gallon aquarium, just in case. You never know. Always be prepared, right? Your dad must have been a Boy Scout. (laughs) Well, you know, we're always doing something. We're either turning over rocks and finding salamanders or snakes or turtles or, you know, we were doing something. So, um, but this time it happens to be, we had all these monarch caterpillars and um, milkweed plants. And I said, well, what are we going to do with all these days? Well, we're going to take them home. And he said, and you're going to get milkweed from the empty lot across the street and every day we'll take care of them. And then, you know, we'll, we'll take care of it when we get back. And I said, okay. So that's what we did. We took them home. I remember it. Um, and when we got home, this 20 gallon aquarium sat in the middle of our dining room table, like what every family has on the middle of their dining room table, right? A big 20 gallon aquarium with lots of caterpillars and poop and, uh, so on and so forth all over mixed up in there with the with the milkweed leaves and we had all different size caterpillars and my dad would say every single day okay you got to go get some more leaves and he'd make me clean up um, all the feces from the um, habitat he'd make me do every ounce of the work and put everything together every single day and they were a mess they really there were like I said there were about a hundred of them and it was a mess multiple times a day um, it got to the point where the caterpillars were starting to make their chrysalises, and I had never seen this before. So to me, this was all new. And I said, "Oh my gosh, Dad, what?" And he goes, "Just watch." And I said, "Okay." And so as they started to make their chrysalises, he would take out the milkweed plants, and he would take the because it, it would um, hang from it. It would hang its stem on different parts of the milkweed and branches that we had 
crisscrossed across the entire um, aquarium and on the screen, the lid. So we would take out the ones that we were able to, and he would put them on our curtains in our dining room. Cause again, that's what everybody does, right? You hang chrysalises from your curtains in the dining room. I guess there could be well, worse things to hang from those curtains. So <laughs> <laughs> they were our, our, our dining room was orange and avocado green, so now I'm really setting the tone. You can picture this, late, right? Late seventies, early eighties, seventies. Yeah, I was a I was an eighties kid, so it was almost as bad. Imagine my house was. You've seen Stranger Things, haven't you? That was my house, like the wood paneling <laughs> yes. and everything yes. orange or red. And, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So that there you have it. You can you can picture exactly what I'm talking about. And Christmas is hanging along, you know, the curtains. Well. We had them all hanging there, and I'd ask my dad, you know, now what? And he'd just say, keep watching, keep watching. That was always the response, keep watching. Well, one day I started to see a few of them go black, and I'm like, oh, my God, Dad, they're dying. And he he looked at me and said, now really watch. He said, "Don't, don't go very far, just really watch. And I said, okay, and I would, you know, watch and he's like no I don't mean you have to sit here and watch you just don't go far just be you know be around stick around so I did and when I saw the first monarch emerge it was like a little baby just being born it's little wet wings and it's big fat abdomen drop out of that chrysalis it's something that it, it stayed ingrained in my mind forever I I never forgot it and I just remember that within a minute or two, it's, it, it instantly, it's soft little wings that were all scrunched up in a ball turned into these big, beautiful, majestic wings that just slowly opened and closed and opened and closed. And it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And I, I was hypnotized by it. And I start, you know, we started to see multiple butterflies hatching and I wanted to see more hatch and, um, I asked my dad, I said, well, now what? And he said, well, we're going to let them dry for a little while. And he's like, come back in a few hours. So <laughs> as a kid, you know, you go out, you play, you go out and play. And um, we had a lot of them. Obviously, they all didn't hatch at the same time. This was multiple days of doing the same thing. But when I came back and these butterflies were all all ready to go, I said, now what, dad? And when we lived in a Chicago bungalow apartment building with two stories, we had the lower level, the upper level and the basement. And so he said, I'm going to go to the back. I'm going to open the back screen door and the back door. You're going to go to the front, open the front door, go down the stairs, open the, the bottom, you know, hallway door and open up the very front door. And we both did that at the same time. And we came back and met in the dining room. They started circling around our chandelier, just flying in circles. And then within a minute, they just kind of, it was like, and they went this way and that way, flying to the front door and to the back door. And they knew exactly where to go and what to do. And they left the house. And that was it. And that was something that stuck in my mind forever. And I don't think my dad ever meant to be the the teacher of something so important in my life like that I mean yes he did and clearly I mean we we used to hang out at the conservatory at Lincoln Park Zoo every Saturday and he'd teach me my butterflies and my cocoons and caterpillars and the plants that they ate and the trees and the you know the host plants I, I knew all of that but 
I don't think he ever thought that this would be so meaningful in my life or have the impact that it did. And the coolest thing of all is that through this, while that that was not clearly something that an animal that I had in my zoo until much later, but it was the story that I told about how I wanted to create that interest and spark that interest in young minds and to get them engaged in something that would really make a difference for them and that it could be something that they didn't know much about. It could be something that they feared, something that was unknown to them, and they could, you know, gain gain a greater understanding or appreciation about something in that manner. And so my program was all about patience, responsibility, dedication, and helping others to, um, you know, come alive through that platform. And so um, a big, huge part of what I did was um, having to do with fear factor. And so the animals that I brought into my zoo were things that I didn't even know or understand, things that I was afraid of. And I I, um, worked for a month and a half to socialize them and uh, do everything within my own home before bringing them into our school district. And then the school district came and picked them all up from my house. And we brought them into school when I started the zoo. So it was a pretty big endeavor. It was pretty cool. And then I slowly worked that um, passion of mine into um, my classroom as well. But that didn't come along until the AIP program when I started with the master's program in 2014. Um, that's when I really started to bring the monarch butterfly back in. The monarch was just a catalyst for starting the zoo. Um, It was a catalyst for how I became interested in so many things and that passion that I wanted to spark in others. It's crazy how things come come full circle. It's like like all symbolic and everything. But, you know, you got me thinking kind of about like the cycles of learning and everything. And you have to, it's almost like the most learning that people do, it, it starts with that engagement. And you can't always know what people are going to be engaged in. So right. yeah. just try to get as many experiences out there as, as you can, you know? That's what I try to tell my students all the time. I'm like, you know, this, this may not be a passion of yours, but hopefully it sparks some sort of something within you that makes you realize that you do have something that you are that passionate about. You do have something that you you know, that you would actually love to do until the day you die, if that's what it took to help. Right, right. So that's pretty much the, you know, the the program that we're in. I mean, that's basically what they ask for. And that sounds pretty overwhelming and daunting when you're asked to do something like that. But once you figure out what that is for you, whatever that is, you know, even if it's it's a more general realm of of things, it's really not hard to keep keep up that responsibility. No, no, I, I definitely hear it. And hopefully our listeners can hear too what, what inspired me to invite you on that show because I just sat back and, and listened to you just, just go. I can hear the, the passion 40 some odd years later or a little bit less than give or take. Um, and th- those memories are, are just as vivid for you and you make them vivid for me as well and hopefully our listeners as well. So that's why I was so excited to have you come on and, and tell your story. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. I'm I'm really excited. I'm glad you got in touch with me, and I'm happy to share my story. And if I could even inspire just one person from um, listening to, you know, some of the the things that I've talked about today, then I've done my job because hopefully that person will share the story and will come alive and make a few other people join them too. Or try to take some risks and take some uh, experiences in nature their own way and, and see what sparks them because you, you're not going to take action o- over something that you're not interested in, that you don't care about. Exactly. So, exactly. And it can, 
anything, whatever it is, how are you going to make a difference in the world? It doesn't matter with what. How are you going to change it? What are you going to do differently? Right, because even small actions can can make big differences. Um, So, yeah, one of the things that I uh, am trying to ask all of my interview subjects is what sort of small actions could a person out there who doesn't know what to do, doesn't know a lot about uh, the issues that we're facing, what small action can they take to make a difference uh, in our future? Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, I think taking an interest and finding other, you know, groups within their community. I think there's people all over the place looking for volunteers, um, people to come and help. Join a community garden at at the local school. Um, Help out in an animal shelter. Um, Help out, you know, within your community. um, Working um, at places like Feed My Starving Children or you know, bagging um, foods and things like that, um, educating people within their own communities about how harmful herbicides and pesticides can be to all of our pollinators, to, to birds, to people, to our animals, our pets. There, there's so much that people can do. It's right in front of our noses. I, I mean, any, any one of us can probably find a hundred different things to promote within our own backyards, within our own communities. Uh, and they're not very hard. It's it's just a matter of figuring out what it is that you want to do to change that. What, recycling, you know, gosh, I, I, the list the list goes on and on. I I could probably you know make your ears bleed. Right. But <laughs> I I won't. Right. The the thing that got me involved actually into teaching as well as uh, focusing more on biology. I came from a chemistry background, and uh, you know a lot of this stuff kind of you know I even took classes about climate change and overpopulation and how humans impact the biosphere, and I I didn't really take it to heart. But what really got me was I just did not feel fully fulfilled. And so I decided on a whim to just try something different. And I decided, I remember that my uncle used to bring me to the uh, field museum when I was little. We grew up kind of poor. And so he would uh, wait until the, wait until the free days of the, at the museum. And then he would take like all eight of us, me, my three brothers Mm -hmm. and my four cousins, he would take us all to, um, he'd take us all to the field museum and we would just, he, he, you know, intellectually he, he wasn't the, the smartest. He didn't have all his Mm -hmm. facts straight, but just experiencing the museum and asking us questions or what do you think about this? Or, Hey, look at that. That kind of looks like us as a family, you know, pointing out a, a bunch of hyenas and look at the way that the, that diorama set up. Look at, isn't that funny? And, and that got me, got me interested in, in, in learning those things. And then as an adult, I wasn't feeling fulfilled. So on a whim, I just signed up to volunteer as an informal educator at the field museum. And I realized that, um, you know, that was kind of my, my entrance way into back into biology. And then that led me into uh, remembering about all these conservation issues. And we got disconnected. We did. But I was just saying how my uncle, he kind of, you know, just without even realizing it, same as you, without even realizing it, just just on a whim, doing something different with his kids and, and his nephews, um, you know, sparked an interest 30 some odd years later that led me uh, down this path. And, and so you never know, you know, when you're going to influence somebody or when you're going to change you, yourself, you're right. right? You don't know. And, you know, at that young age, you didn't realize that that would become the very thing that was the catalyst for you doing what you do. Right, right, definitely. So pretty cool. 
It is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And, you know, I encourage anyone that ever listens to just, you know, even if you're super involved in conservation, to not forget the next generations out there, too. And they're watching. They they see what you're doing. Exactly. You got it. Um, I, I, I think that that's fantastic. And I'm really happy to hear that you're moving forward with this idea and sharing stories, because I think it's through storytelling um, that we get a lot of people engaged, not just children, but adults as well. Um, and so many people love to listen to podcasts and um, they, you know, love to share them um, with their families. So I, I think this is a wonderful thing that you're doing. I can't wait to see it all put together. Yep, yep. I'm, I'm still learning. I, I'm making definitely making a lot of mistakes and I'm kind of doing it trial by fire. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. You know, I, it, I dragged my feet on it a lot because I was nervous. Uh, I was nervous of not doing it well enough. And, you know, just like with uh, t- jumping in to doing volunteering at the Field Museum, I said, you know, hey, I, I, <laughs> time to, uh, you know, just try something and see if it works. Well, this is awesome. This is fantastic. And I'm, I'm really glad you reached out to me again. And uh if there's anything else, you know, as you move forward and you need you need something else or whatever, please don't hesitate to call. I definitely will not. I definitely will not hesitate, and I definitely will not call you. I definitely will not hesitate to call. Um, <laughs> Uh, really quickly, one more thing. I did write it down, but um, for anybody who's still listening, um, where can they find out more information about your monarch way stations and more information about the plights of the uh, monarch butterflies who make migrations from here in the Midwest all the way down to Mexico every single year? Well, there's a, v- a few different sites, but first, um, my endeavor is start seeing monarchs.org. Um, and so you can find a lot of information on there. Um, I do have to say um, some of it in terms of personal information and stuff is not the most up-to-date in terms of just been so busy with trying to get things going within my community and keeping up with the younger uh, generation and all the kids uh, that I've been doing in presentations within my own area that the website is kind of, um, I I don't want to say gone by the wayside, but um, it has the important information that I need on there and it has contact information so people can get in touch with me should they need to. We have a GoFundMe page as well for anybody who wishes to contribute to our endeavor, and that goes towards um, using the funds to be able to educate our community. Um, I do presentations at universities, at the libraries, within our school, within our community. I do all sorts of different things, and we try to get way stations established um, in different areas. We just recently um, got, we um, I, I started National Start Seeing Monarchs Day. This is our fifth year this coming May. The first Saturday in every May is National Start Seeing Monarchs Day. And um, on that day, what do we do? We plant some milkweed and we start seeing monarchs. So um, that's a day that we try to promote people to start getting their gardens ready and to start thinking about um, what they're going to do, whether they're going to plant some new annuals or some new perennials or some different species of milkweeds to start getting excited about seeing uh, monarchs back in our area. And where was I headed with this, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> Information, so you, the National Star of Monarchs Day, places they can go for more information. You want to go to um, Monarch Watch. Um, that's a, a wonderful resource. I use it all the time. Journey North um, is another uh, great resource. Um, there are a lot of different um, people who are very knowledgeable within your own communities in terms of garden clubs. Like I, um, I have... Um, contacts for the Schomburg Garden Club and the Hoffman Estates Garden Club. Um, and I can reach out to them and they can reach out to me at any point in time. So I help them. They help me. 
Um, I think that's the best way to try to establish relationships and make connections with other people because they can, they can help you when, you know, you're not exactly sure what to do. There's always someone around who can help. Um, and there's so many people who are involved in this endeavor. It, it, it takes a village. So if, if you ask around or if anybody um, has any questions, they can by all means contact me and I'm happy to get back to them as well. And like I said, all they have to do is get on my website and it says contact me. There's a place where they can and they can ask any questions and I'm more than happy to help. Sounds amazing, Kim. Thanks for uh, coming on. I, I definitely appreciate your time away from your family and your little puppy. Um, and <laughs> I try to stay warm and we'll be thinking about you when things start warming up and we start seeing those monarchs again. All right. Well, wonderful. It was great to talk to you again, Patrick. You take care. And uh, again, I'm looking forward to hearing all these great stories. All right. Thanks, Kim. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unless Stories of Everyday Earth Savers. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and learned something new, or at least gained appreciation for somebody's story, because everybody has a story. Before you leave, I want you to know that I cannot continue without you, the listener, so I thank you so much. If you have any idea for a future show or ways to improve, please drop me an email at feedback at sciencescenes.com. Unless is going to be a twice-monthly show, but the first few episodes will be released at an accelerated pace. To make sure you don't miss a show, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use. Also, make sure to leave a review or comment wherever you downloaded this episode. Positive feedback and constructive criticism can help this podcast to become a better version of itself. So, until next time, take some action to make this world a better place. Because without you, things won't get better. No, they will not. See you soon.